This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money To Me. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Candace Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Now, do we have a good episode today for you? So we've got Owen Hegarty. He's considered in the industry as the king of commodities. Now, Owen has more than 50 years of experience in the global mining industry. This includes 25 years with Rio Tinto Group, where he was a managing director of Rio Tinto Asia and Rio Tinto's Australian copper and gold business. They're obviously the commodities he loves, as you'll hear in this conversation. He has coined copper red gold, which is fantastic. So Owen was the founder and managing director of Oxyar Limited, which he coined the Mighty Ox. And he has led that company basically from a very junior explorer to one of Australia's or Asia Pacific, in fact, largest precious metals producer. Oxiana then became Oz Minerals, which was recently taken out by one of the big majors, BHP. Owen is also chairman of the Tigers Realm Minerals Group. And up until the end of 2016, he was the vice chairman of the ASX listed company Fortescue Metals Group, FMG. So there's a lot of big names on his resumes. This is definitely an episode that you don't want to miss. Now, Owen is the founder and currently the executive chairman of EMR Capital, which is a special mining private equity company. Now, EMR has some US 2.5 billion funds under management and has over eight mining projects and operations worldwide. He obviously loves the number eight. He's got eight mining projects and as you'll hear, eight golden rules for investing in this sector. Now, before we kick off today's interview with Owen, as always a reminder, guys, the chat today is not considered personal advice, even though we are registered advisors at Shoreham Partners. Please note this podcast and the content discussed does not constitute as financial advice, nor is it a financial product. Everything we are speaking about today is based on the facts known at the time of recording, which is the 14th of March, 2023. With that, let's bring in Owen. Welcome, Owen, to Talk Money to Me. Now, we've heard a lot about you. Essentially, you were called the King of Commodities, which is a pretty big title. Um, Now, can you give us a brief description of your 50 plus year career in the mining industry? So much felicity for that question and lovely to be here and to join you today. Uh, I'm not so sure about the King of Commodities, but, uh, but thank you for that intro. Okay, my background is very simple. I've been in the mining industry all of my working life, which now spans around about the 50 years uh, or thereabouts. I had uh, joined Rio Tinto straight from university, was there for 20-something years and and all commodities, all countries and all companies. So wonderful uh, background, very lucky really to have that sort of background with Rio. And then I went to the from the big end of town to the small end of town uh, and we started a group, a company called Oxiana and we, and we grew Oxiana. It was, it was copper, gold, basin precious metals, Asia, Australia, Pacific uh, and we grew that business 
business with sort of family and friends and then ultimately into the bigger institutions from a few million dollars to a few billion dollars, one of those overnight successes that took about 15 years or, or thereabouts. <laughs> and then after the Mighty Ox, I joined up with a couple of the people that I've been working with for some time in, in the Ox and we we began a private equity group called EMR Capital, and we're sort of the three or four of us are the owner-founder drivers of that business. That's based in Hong Kong, based here in Melbourne. That was about 10 years or so ago. So I've been in the industry doing the same sort of things for a very long period of time, and the, and the commodities much the same. Felicity in terms of copper, gold, basin precious metals, metallurgical coal, and also potter. So we've diversified a bit. We've gained a little bit of biodiversity there over the years, but still very much uh, in, in, in the mining industry at this time. So that's it. A very quick snapshot there, Felicity. That's perfect. That's great. <laughs> I love how you said it was, you know, essentially an overnight success that took 15 years. We we want to hear more about that. You called it the Mighty Ox, which I just love. But I guess winding back the clock there, Owen, did you ever imagine what you were starting all those years ago would become such a big target for BHP? And could you see it that early on, like the fit there for BHP? Talk us through that. Yes. Well, uh, okay. What what we saw at the very beginning there was the the opportunity to grow a business in Asia, Australia, uh, and and pr- base and precious metals, particularly copper and gold. So I saw the opportunity coming. I was lucky enough to have worked in Asia during my career at uh, Rio Tinto, and you could see the economies growing. You could see the demand for metals happening, uh, and we thought it was a perfect opportunity uh, to grow you know, from a small beginning to grow a decent scale uh, business. Okay, so we started the Mighty Ox and we invested in Laos, again, family and friends and some very good people from the smaller end of town, some of the smaller retail type investors, some of whom uh, you will actually recognize, came with us uh, during that journey. So they, they were the smaller beginnings. We then branched out from, from Laos in copper and gold into Australia, over there into South Australia with the Prominent Hill asset. So we bought the Prominent Hill asset and we took it from an exploration project up to a you know long life, good scale uh, copper and gold operation right there in the shadow uh, of B. BHP's uh, Olympic Dam there in South Australia, and then we added Golden Grove to that, and we had, and then Matabi in Indonesia, and various other things that we were actually doing at that time, and and so that's how we grew it over that period of time. Did we ever think that we were going to grow something that was going to be attractive to uh, the majors? Well. That was always our longer-term vision, if you like. I mean, your main duty, obviously, is to your existing shareholders to grow your business, to grow significant value uh, for your shareholders and all stakeholders. Uh, And if you can do that successfully over a period of time, you will make yourself more attractive to other people, uh, including the, the bigger end of town, so as to speak. And that's exactly what happened here with the Mighty Ox, which became Oz Minerals, and of course, the Prominent Hill asset, and then of course, the Carapatina asset. So quite good scale 
copper gold assets that became attractive to BHP. As BHP looked at other uh, things around the world, it could see some serious synergies there with those assets of Oz Minerals. Uh, and you've seen all the documentation and paperwork out there in terms of that particular bid and acquisition and so on. So it makes it made so much sense. But we got it, you know, we got them from that early stage through to that scale. So in answer to your question, did you see it at that time? No, of course you can't see so far forward, of course, but at the same time, you're working a way to actually grow value. And if you are successful, then you will be more attractive to those bigger guys, bigger end of town. Absolutely. Look, I really like the fact that your primary thought was really focusing on looking after the shareholders, right? And then looking after the fundamentals of the business. And that's probably why BHP saw it as such a great fit, right? So worked well from the bottom up. Now on the gold and m a theme, why is Newmont interested? in Newcrest and why are we seeing so much M&A in mining at the moment? Very good question. Newmont and Newcrest, two of the big big guys in the in the gold business. Well, the gold business, as you know, uh, Felicity, is actually uh, M&A is quite prevalent more than more than others. Maybe, maybe not, not 100% sure, but the gold companies are always, the bigger end of town particularly, they're always looking for acquisitions, always looking to bulk up their total reserves and resources uh, of gold because gold is so hard to find. There are less discoveries over the last 20 or 30 years a type of thing. If you look at all the data, it, it has been very difficult to find despite all the exploration dollars going into it, uh, it's been hard to find. And therefore, acquisitions, mergers, those sorts of transactions are important as you are growing your gold business because if you can't find it, you've got to buy it. And that, that was one reason. But also, of course, Newcrest has copper, you know, so it's not, yes, it's gold mainly, but it's also got copper as a buy product credit. And we call it red gold, copper. So it's a very valuable byproduct uh, credit to have. So, and it gives, of course, Newmont greater uh, diversity around the world and, and so on and so forth. So you will continue to see, I mean, that's a very large transaction, of course, but you've got other transactions, smaller scale, medium scale happening around the world. And you'll continue to see them as there continues to be a scramble for more and more gold in your individual portfolio. Does that make any sense to you? Absolutely. And I absolutely love this tagline. If you can't find it, you've got to buy it. That's great. That's absolute gold. Excuse my pun. <laughs> so really, the smaller guys is what you're saying may or may not just not exist in the next five to 10 years if this M&A you know, buying up keeps happening, which is really interesting to think about. If we switch back to private equity just for a moment, Owen, you mentioned that you and your team, you know, a lot of you then went on to establish EMR Capital. So with everything that's going on in capital markets and you just touched on M&A and how it's really a hot topic, do you see any benefit for mining companies to stay private for longer? And I would love to ask you also, because you've been in those boardroom meetings when you're talking about acquisitions and valuations, what goes on behind the scenes when you're talking about a private company and a public company when it comes to M&A? 
Yes, look, again, uh, very interesting when it comes to M&A private uh, and public. I mean, we decided to go into private equity because at least you've got a, you've got a pool of capital to start with. You you keep it private. It's, it's uh, simpler in a way. I mean, nothing's ever simple or easy in our business, you know, but it, but it's a bit simpler if you're coming in from the from the private uh, side with a pool of capital uh, to make those uh, acquisitions. So that's been a you know it's been a successful uh, journey for us on, on the private side. But of course the uh, companies when you're just starting out, it's a bit like with the Mighty Ox when we were starting out there. You had to be public. You have to be out there in the public markets to access the capital to get yourself known throughout, you know, throughout the, the country, the, the listing jurisdiction where you are, to be able to draw attention to yourself, if, if you like, is one way of putting it, uh, and show off your wares and attract the capital. That's that's the way that you have to do it. And that's why you see the, the, the so many smaller companies all vying for that capital in the public space. So, you know, there's always a bit of a debate as you whether it be private uh, or public, public space gives you the you know probably a better better valuations if you like a better exit opportunities if you like if that's what you're looking for ultimately uh, but but private side enables you to pool a mass capital ready to make your acquisition so I see in terms of the you mentioned the smaller smaller companies there's always room for those smaller companies the startups and so on there and we will do everything to continue to encourage that in a way because they're the ones who make more discoveries. It is the smaller people doing absolutely excellent work, entirely focused on making those discoveries and getting getting assets ready to development stage, getting them in production if they possibly can. And that's the time that the the medium size and the bigger guys will come and take them over, particularly on the on the gold front and copper. And you're going to see more and more on the copper side too, Candice, because there are so few discoveries. There are so few good copper projects out there, small and large, and more and more copper is required. You know what, Owen, we've actually heard that you are very bullish on copper. So we're looking forward to hearing more about that and potentially maybe some of your key ideas. So um, on that, I guess, how has the mining industry changed really over the last 50 years? What still needs to be improved? Yes, well, over the 50 years, I mean, it's been an amazing journey, really, in, in mining uh, the last 50 years. It's just become so big in Australia, particularly uh, Felicity. I mean, this this is where Australia is now best in world, best in class, best in show at mining uh, resource, all the way from exploration through all of the feasibility studies, through the construction and the financing into production operations and then ultimately expansion and so on and so forth. So the industry has 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 become so much bigger and everything that hangs off it, it's not just the operation per se, it's all of the advisors, the METs, the mining equipment and technical services, all of those things. So we now in Australia have serious critical mass in this industry. So, you know, it's got a, an, an amazing amazing future. So over the past 50 years, we've grown from relatively small but significant to now 
absolutely uh, world class and, and, and the world in a way uh, is our oyster from that perspective. So that's one thing. The second thing, of course, is technically we've, we've kept up. So it's not as if we're sort of old-fashioned people, uh, you know, in an old-fashioned industry here. Uh, we've kept right up to date with uh, AI, automation, robotics, digitization, miniaturization, uh, decarbonization, and all, all of those things that are actually happening around us. We've, we've been, we've kept up to date. Uh, and in the way we're leaders there, not only the industry, but you've also got really good government support, federal government, state government support, and they are they have also bought in, whether it's the CSIRO uh, or Geoscience Australia, they do just fabulous work, you know, at the exploration stage, the mineral processing stage and so on. So you've got a wonderful industry on the technical side, and we've also uh, got a lot better and will continue to improve on the whole ESG, the social side, you know, getting much, much, much better at that. So I've seen that very significant change over uh, the last 50 years. Whether it's ESG or DEI, whatever it is, we, we are doing better and we will continue to improve this. So, you know, significant changes. That's definitely 100% accurate. I agree with everything you've said there in, in looking back at your history as well. So if we can look forward, I know no one has uh, a magic globe, right? But you are Mr. Commodity. We're going we're gonna to coin you that term. So on a sector level, you've kind of talked about the, the challenges to date that, you know, Australia's done quite well. But overall, you know, if you could touch on Australian politics as well and global, what risks and challenges do you still see in the sector and how do we overcome it? You know, if you could make changes, what would it be? Okay. Okay. Look, the, the risks and the challenges, all of the usual risks and challenges in our industry remain available to us, if you like, you know, all of those things, whether it's the volatility of prices, whether it's whether it's permitting, you know, capital costs, operating costs, and so on, all, all of those things, uh, you know, tectonic shifts and so on, all those things continue to be available. Uh, that's okay. But, but so we manage those and we deal with them. And, you know, you've got to make sure you've got the right people with the right background, with the right experience and, and so on. And we say, we we extol that as a virtue in our business that you've got people with, uh, you know, the experience and background and all the scars to prove it, that, you know, they're the, they're the people that you should be backing. Okay, so what are the what are the, what are the bigger risks? What are those that are going to actually pop out? Well, at the moment, uh, it really is access to people. It's getting, you know, getting more and more people in, in into the industry. We've got to make ourselves more attractive. It's not. It's 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 the shift people. It's just getting people to work. I mean, it's post COVID is one thing, uh, but we've got to attract more people at the operating level, at the professional level, at the technical level, and at the senior management level. Because you know, there's more and more demand coming at us. You know, strong growth in commodity demand. You know, is going to require more and more people. Yes, we're being more productive. Yes, we're doing automation. We're doing robotics. We're doing AI, we're doing all these sorts of things, but you continue to need uh, more people. And that's probably one of our biggest challenges uh, here in Australia and rest of the world. And, and, you know, we are leading the rest 
of the world uh, in the industry. So we have got to show leadership and attract more people. Okay, so that's one thing. And, and I suppose second thing, without banging on too long here, Candice, about that question, the second thing is really in that whole ESG area, you know, your investors, whether they be private people, small institutions, the bigger institutions, they are going to be more particular. They're going to be more fussy uh, about your whole ESG program, all of your principles, all of your policies, all of your procedures. Do they do they hit the targets? Do they tick the boxes? Are they world-class? In other words, do they match up with that institution's uh, sort of culture, if you like, uh, and their own policies and procedures? So you're going to put more and more time and effort into making sure that you've got uh, those things. So that's a, that's a challenge, as well as all the usual things in terms of access to land uh, and so on. And, and from a from a government, you asked me the question about the government perspective. As I say, we work with government. I'm on a, a few advisory boards and various other things like that. And and we're lockstep there. There's no question about it. People in on both sides of the equation uh, under, understand all that. From time to time, they'll hit you up for a few more bob, of course, in terms of royalty and all all these various all these various things. But generally speaking, they see the value, uh, and they are looking to also assist, aid, and abet when it comes to you know, furthering uh, education, more professional, more technical people being attracted uh, into the industry. Generally speaking, that is the case. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we've seen it time and time before that our resources have really prevented a recession here in Australia. So you'd think the government that would be on board um, to really support that. I guess on your previous point, so, you know, people in ESG, obviously people that was negatively impacted with through COVID, is there potential more risks with the China-Taiwan uh, tensions. Is that something that we need to be worried about in this sector? I'm thinking that uh, over the over the course of the next multiple decades, uh, you're going to see continued long, strong demand, whether it's from China as it continues to uh, urbanise uh, and grow uh, type of thing throughout the you know, rest of that, that part of the world, other parts of the uh, Asia, whether it's India, Indonesia, other parts of Southeast Asia. So you're going to continue to see strong growth there, no worries at all. Um, in terms of diversification of markets, for example, I mean, yes, we have been reliant in the in the past, particularly for iron ore and number of other commodities with respect to China, and that growth has been amazing for both countries, really, in terms of development, and Taiwan too. I used to live in Taiwan. I lived in down in Kaohsiung in southern Taiwan there, with uh, with my whole family as we built a uh, we built a business down there uh, many years ago. So they've been a, actually a big factor in the whole that whole region, you know, in terms of uh, growth there. Whether they be tensions and ups and downs and this and that, I think Felicity over a period of time you're going to see them. You're going to continue to see them. I mean, peace, happiness, love and kindness haven't broken out completely around the world uh, just yet. So you'll continue to see the the geopolitical tensions. You see them there. As you say, with that particular issue, you're seeing them with Russia uh, and, and other parts of the world. So you'll see those things. But generally speaking, our view, long, strong commodity demand. Uh, and you as a business here uh, in Australia or wherever you're in the world, obviously take note of that, as you suggest. But 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 you're always looking to diversify your markets as well, always looking to do that. And that's where India has been very important in terms of taking up a lot of growth. Indonesia, very important. Vietnam, other parts of Southeast Asia, and the rest of the developing world. I mean, 
you know, there's no question the, the world is going to continue to develop humps and bumps, of course, along the way, but will continue to develop. So, so, and we're in good in a good spot there in the mining industry to take advantage of that. I love that point where you were saying long, strong commodity demand first, almost as your benchmark, and then go hunting for the right investment, which here at Talk Money to Me, Owen, you will uh, understand if we get to the second part of this episode, we love to hear about investable ideas. So in a moment, we're going to be asking you what exactly you look for when it comes to the right mining investment, and also your thoughts on where we are in the commodity cycle right now and where we will be in the future. So stay tuned, guys. We're just going to quickly hear from our sponsors. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, and we are back. So let's talk money. Okay, so what do you look for in a mining investment? I mean, are they the same factors that a retail or institutional investor should look at when looking in a mining investment? Well, definitely very similar parallelograms, uh, if you if you like there, in terms of those things that we look at versus a, a retail investor. Now, what we look at, we have what we call a rule of eight, so we're very disciplined about it. It must have the tons, it must have the grade, it must have the quality. It must have low cost, long life, lots of upside. You know, it must be in a stable uh, and secure domain and it must be, as we say, eminently exitable. In other words, we want assets that are actually other people are going to find more attractive than than we do type of thing. So, so they are the, they are the fundamentals that we look for. We know if you're looking as a smaller investor into some of the uh, companies here in Australia, you look for very similar things. You don't need to look at it in the same sort of detail as we do uh, because we are, you know, we're control people. We like to make an acquisition. We like to get in and run the show, uh, you know, not because we're, you know, pathological control freaks here, uh, but but simple, simply because we've gone to a lot of trouble to put together, you know, teams of people who've got long, strong mining experience background and experience. And to be able to use that properly, you've actually got to be in charge. You've got to be on the field, in the coach's box at least type of thing, uh, as opposed to back in the bleachers. If you're back in the bleachers and you're looking to pick stocks, uh, you know, you've still got to go through that same routine, but you rely then on the people. And every time you pick up a prospectus, when you, you will flick through the prospectus and you'll go straight to the people. You go straight to the names and the faces of the people who were in charge of the show here. And and therefore, you've got to be very clear uh, that you do your due diligence on those people. Have they done it before? What industry have they been in? You know, what are their trials? What are their tribulations? What have they what have they done type of thing? So as a smaller investor, you're still, you continue to look at all of those things, the tons, the grade, the quality, long life, lots of upside, all of those sorts of usual things, uh, but you must focus very much on the people. From our side, we focus on the people too, but you know we, we tend to come in and put our own people in charge. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So when you are looking at investments, are you looking at private mines or are you looking at listed companies? I mean, what key resources are you looking at at the moment, Owen? Yes. Well, it, it's a little bit of both in terms of uh, whether we look at uh, whether it's a private already or whether it's in uh, public hands. We, we always look at uh, both. We try to do our work uh, particularly well, uh, and and we've got good relationships with the majors and the medium-sized people, uh, and so on and so forth. But of course, from time to time, and, and in fact more often these days, uh, the public companies actually run processes. Uh, so you know, all you've got to do is sit and wait for the process to come to you, uh, in a way, because you know, public public companies tend to have to, uh, you know, run that. Uh, public process. Okay, so so we feed uh, of all of those uh, all of those sorts of things. Having having made up our mind, Felicity, exactly the model, and and our model is these commodities: copper, gold, base, and precious metals, energy transition metals, along with metallurgical coal, uh, along with potash in the fertilizer space. So that's our that's our sort of suite of uh, commodities. We've made up our mind about those. We've done all of our work. We think they are going to be very good forever. So we like to uh, invest in them. And the sort of model that we have is we would we prefer as a private equity group, we prefer to have uh, invest in a company or an operation or a project per se uh, that has been un- unloved, if you like, undercapitalized, uh, is re- requires capital, uh, requires improvement, has just fallen off the back of the truck of a major or has come out of a uh, an acquisition, a merger of the two elephants, if you like, uh, and there's certain some things will fall off the back of those trucks. So that's the that's our hunting ground where we think we can actually pick up assets uh, and we can improve them. And we've done that here uh, in Australia. We've done it uh, offshore. And, and all those opportunities are always uh, available to you because you've had you've got that acquisitional opportunity. You've got the majors are always doing strategic reviews, always doing them, you know, and they can only focus on a certain number of assets and operations and projects at a time, somewhere between five and eight or nine or something or other, that means the other assets, they don't get the capital, they don't get the attention, they don't get the people, uh, and therefore they will underperform. And that's that's where we come in, if you like, to feed off, off all of that. We prefer not to make the discovery whole, if you like. We prefer to be at that you know development area or operating area where you take the risk and uh, and the time risk away from the investment. Yeah, the pivotal moment where you just need more capital to really push it to the next phase is what you're saying. That's it. So can you share with us some lessons learnt, good and bad, from your rule of eight? You know, you've obviously nailed it a few times, but I think a lot of investors love to hear, you know, where it also goes wrong. And, and it's a humbling moment, right? We all get it wrong sometimes. Can you share with us any insights there? Yes, 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 absolutely. Got got oodles and oodles of uh, mistakes. If you like, a whole room full. Anyway, but but seriously, on the uh, you know, what do you learn from the good decisions, if you like, or the good investments? Will, will, will you learn, of course, that um, not to get 
too far ahead of yourself. Don't, don't get carried away with one one very good uh, decision uh, type of thing. They call it fatal casino conceit or something or other uh, because you've got to recognise that, yes, that, that might have been the right way forward, but there's a fair bit of luck involved with all these sort of things as well. So you've got to recognise that. So I think that that too is, is as you say, a humbling uh, moment on the on the positive side. On, on the negative side, of course, I say plenty of those, and you tend to learn so much more, uh, you know, from those mistakes uh, that are made. Some of them you can correct on the run, of course. Some some you can't. Some take a lot uh, longer. Okay, so in what areas are they? They tend to fall, in, in our experience anyway, they tend to fall in the due diligence area. In other words, when you're looking at an asset, you know, take your time, do your work carefully, do your work very thoroughly, do your work very well and get plenty of advice type of thing on the way in. And if you don't have time, if somebody says, oh, no, you've only got 30 days to do the work and so on and so forth and you've got to make a bid, etc. well, we're not going to be there, you know, because we know that just takes longer uh, to do that work. So you must do your work well. And remember, it's at that – it's at that due diligence stage and it's at that um, execution stage. It's, it's a bit like building a new project. At that early stage, when you're doing something like that, everything that you do is going to last forever. So more or less, you know, it's going to last for a very long time. So you must have your best people uh, doing their best work when you're doing that. And the second part, as I, as I mentioned, uh, of all of that in terms of where you will make mistakes is in the execution. Having having done your due diligence, having made the acquisition, negotiated out the deal, you've got to execute the deal and you've got to have a very serious plan for what's, what are you going to do on day one? What are you going to do for that first seven days? What are you going to do for the first 30 days? What what about the first 180 days? What are your targets for the first 12 months? So you must execute well on those plans because it's one thing to make an acquisition and you tend to buy it and then, fi- then find out what you've really bought type of thing. So you've, you've really got to be ready to execute well uh, with that plan. And that's where it takes, you know, people with the background, the experience, uh, and you, you must have, you know, good good selection of, uh, of people at that time. The execution piece is, you know, the moment, right? And as you keep saying, a big topic from the chat with you, Owen, is good people. Mm. And and there is a skill shortage in talented people. So I, I would just love to know if you can name an example. You don't have to, but has there been a moment where you've done all your homework, it's all proven well, you get to the execution stage, and then unfortunately your key person that you're backing has left? Well, we've had moments like that. I mean, uh, without sort of naming names or or times or or projects. Yes, we've had moments like that, and it breaks your heart, right? Because you 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 you're banging. You've told your board, you know, you've told your shareholders, this is how we're going to do this, you know, uh, because I say none of these things are ever simple or easy. And not only that, we've got the team or the person or this experience and that experience, uh, and then suddenly they disappear for some reason. They're, they're snatched by the competition uh, or, or something or other or didn't didn't like your plan, didn't like the KPIs that you'd set for him or her a type of thing. Uh, so, 
so you then, I mean, it's a great scurrying moment, I, I can assure you, to actually make sure. And then, of course, you're never, you know, you're ne- never 100% sure about w- what comes next. So, yes, we've seen plenty of them, uh, and that's part of your diligence and as part of your execution, you must. And, and that's, in a way, where a lot of my work, a lot of my time is spent, actually, you know, making sure that we do have the right people uh, testing, the right teams, so the right car the right culture, you know, not only the skills, but they've got to have, uh, you know, good attitude too. You've got to have people not only do their day job superbly well, but they've got to be able to buy into the culture. And, you know, because you must have both of those sides uh, of the equation. You've got to be, you know, do your day job superbly well, and you've got to be a very good person. Yeah, of course. You definitely need that. I think that's all very important. I think so. If you kind of bring it back to the analogy of right building a house. So I guess you you need to do the DD and have the right plans drawn up. But hap- what happens if, you know, the house is built and the plumbing actually ends up on the other side of the house? Um, and I guess that does happen, right? Then you need to get someone in to actually make the, you know, put the plumbing on the other side to ensure that everything sets up for the bathroom. So it's not a complete disaster. It can be fixed. It just obviously takes a little bit more time and the right experts in there. So I guess what advice, I mean, this probably happens to a lot of emerging mining companies. What advice could you give to new emerging mining companies listening to this podcast in order to be a success? Well, again, for the new emerging mining companies, as you say, the plumbing on the wrong side of the house, we've had plenty of those examples. Make make sure you get your execution well, monitor very closely, uh, and be ready with a plan B, uh, you know, to to sweep into action and ensure that you've got enough runway in terms of time and you've got access to capital. I mean, I know these things get a bit tight. Here's the budget. We'll allocate this amount of money and so on and so forth. But what happens if you're over? So allocate a bit more or know where to go when you do need more capital. But that's that's terribly important. So it's one thing to actually raise the capital. You mustn't stop telling people what's going on, keeping everybody up to date. That way they're informed and that way they won't be shocked when you come back and say, well, look, it's a little bit over. I was only a little bit over. Uh, or the plumbing's on the on the wrong side. Uh, therefore, you know, we, we've got to come back and, and do some repairs. Okay. So so that's, that's one thing, I suppose, a good plan B uh, and and watch and monitor closely but what advice for the uh, for the for the juniors getting going and so on and so forth well you know first of all keep doing it uh, because it's terribly important for our industry and our future right that we continue to encourage people into the industry make those discoveries make those developments uh, and gr- grow that business in this you know this absolutely highly competitive industry uh, that we have here that that's one thing second thing is you've got to have, as we just discussed, you've got to have a plan. You've got to have your vision. You've got to have your strategic objectives. You've got to have your annual plans and you've got to have your budget. Have that organized in advance uh, and stay with it because the investors on the other side, whether they be retail or whether they be institutional, they'll be looking for that. What's your plan? What are you actually going to do? And then execute against that uh, plan. And and I suppose another thing that we found very important uh, and successful over a period of time is persistence. You have to keep going. You know, you have to kiss a lot of frogs in this in this business. You know, whether it's whether it's walking up and down Pitt Street or Collins Street, uh, you know, telling your 
story. You've got to tell it over and over and over again. You've got to be persistent because you might be in the bottom of the, you know, you might be at the bottom of the downturn or the wrong end of the cycle or something like that. If you've got a good project, you know, you really believe in it, you've got to be absolutely persistent to make sure that uh, you get there. So don't give up. Never give up. Never give up. Don't give up. That's some really, really good advice there. I mean, there is a lot on the ASX, for example. There's so many micro cap and small cap mining stocks. You know, do you believe they're better off staying private until they can pay a dividend? Because they're quite volatile, right? And we know a lot of investors now are really looking for yield at the moment. Hence, they're all going to the majors. Yes. What are your comments around that? Yes. Well, uh, you, you would like to stay private for as long as you possibly can. There's no question about about that. that that would always be uh, your preference but really to get out uh, out and beyond I mean it's one thing for a startup to be amongst family and friends uh, but you tend to run out of, of money amongst family and friends you know particularly when you've got a good project that does require capital does require people more time uh, and so on so therefore you know you have to go beyond that and you have to become public and and I have to say I mean the the, the ASX uh, uh, and, and everything that surrounds us, your own your own group are so good at, at marshalling, uh, you know, marshalling the funds, marshalling the information, uh, sifting through all the various uh, companies and so on, and marshalling the funds to be able to do it. So it's a very efficient system. Uh, and the platform here in Australia, the ASX platform, all of the rules, all the regulations, your governors, your regulators, your bureaucrats, whether they be inside the ASX or whether they be inside ASIC, you know, it's a very, very good good system and it works it works better than than anything else in the, in the world actually for our mining industry so so you can yes you can stay private for for as long as you can i suppose but there's no danger going out there into the into the public equity markets yes you've got to go through a few humps and bumps there felicity from time to time a few downturns uh when you wonder why you ever started this <laughs> but if you're if you're persistent and you've got the right uh project and the right people you will succeed so, Owen, I just want to continue that thought because I guess for any emerging private company right now listening in the mining space, I'm hearing a bit of hope. You know, you've sa- you're saying we've got a good regulatory system, we've got a lot of peer support as well, um, and it's not as scary as you think about, you know, doing that leap from private to public. So, let's just come back to the big question on the sector. Where do you think we are in the cycle at the moment? for commodities and the big catalyst, you know, with you touched on China, but other emerging markets like India and Indonesia. So where is the hope, I guess, for the commodity market that we're in right now? Uh, definitely. Look, I think, uh, you know, where are we with res- in respect of the clock, for example? Are we up our six or up our 12 or, or somewhere? Well, I think we're sort of on the way out, right? I, I mean, we have, we've been through COVID. You've been through supply chain disruptions. You've been through inflation. You've been through interest rate rises. You've been sh- through shortages of, of commodities. You've been through volatilities there. You've had the Australia-China uh, sort of tensions that are, that are easing off now. So you've actually been through, I'm sure you've been through the worst of it. 
uh, and, and and you've got other, uh, you mentioned a bit earlier, country, geopolitical tensions and so on. You've got all that. But I think um, we've been through that and we're now on the way out. And you're starting to see commodity prices respond. You're seeing copper up, you're seeing gold up, you're seeing zinc up. Uh, and and but and supply continue, you know, coming on. Uh, so it's not as if it's only uh, demand driving. Okay, so how's it going to go on? We need to get China back to work. We need to get China back and 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 thumping, uh, and you know, to that drumbeat. Uh, and they're they're on the case. Uh, they're claiming six percent growth this year, uh, and that will be the target again for the next uh, year or two. And 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 China have done everything. When you look at the economic growth track record over the past 20 years there, 25 years, they have actually hit those targets pretty much every time. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's the growth rate, whether it's the industry expansion, uh, whether it's the diversification of markets and so on, uh, they, they tend to actually hit those targets. So, you know, we need that uh, to continue. Uh, we need, and of course, India, by the way, has actually been growing very, very successfully, very strong, very large market, uh, very strong competitive advantage when it, when it comes to certain things uh, in India. And and some of the states have been growing at 10% for several years, you know. So that is, they're past the point, I believe, of economic uh, takeoff. So, and and we, we've actually uh, developed up good, strong relationships there with India as a country and, of course, as companies, we've done that. Uh, and same, same, Indonesia. I mean, Indonesia is just a fabulous uh, place, economic growth happening. You, you can see it grow. You know, 300 million uh, people, multiple islands, great resources, uh, you know, very good, uh, stable economy, uh, politics, really good uh, conditions for economic takeoff. And they are now past the point of economic takeoff. So they are they're, they're, they are actually bounding, right? And the same you're seeing it in Vietnam and other parts of Asia. So that's where the growth is going to come from. No doubt humps and bumps along the way and shortage of this and price of that uh, and so on. You, you continue to see that, but I think we're going to come out of it, uh, you know, within these next uh, year or two uh, very strongly. And I, I don't think you've seen anything yet, by the way, uh, in terms of stronger demand and, and prices for certain uh, uh, of the of the commodities over the next uh, ten years or so. So it's, look, it's just fabulous times actually to be in our industry, Candice. That's a pretty bull call for resources, which we love to hear. <laughs> That's fantastic. It is. So we're at the beginning of a commodity super cycle, essentially, and we should be looking at emerging markets like Vietnam and Indonesia. So you mentioned, Owen, earlier, decarbonisation being a big catalyst. Um, you know, are you bullish on uranium? As we know, Australia actually has one third of the world's uranium resources. I mean, where do you think that has further to run potentially? Very bullish on uranium, no question about it. The whole decarbonisation, energy transition, you know, however you want to characterize it, and it's got a long, long, long way to run, no question about that, and, you know, umps and bumps and um, all sorts of disruptions and dysfunctions and so on along the way there and missing of targets and so on, but it's got a long, long way to run. And the big winners are going to be, you know, copper, cobalt, lithium, all of those energy transition metals and uranium. Very important, and Australia so you know so blessed really to have such fabulous uh, resources of, of uranium, and many undiscovered. No question about that. More and more 
will be discovered over, over a period of time. So we're, we're very bullish uh, uranium. Uranium for us, by the way, as a, as a PE group, a little bit more difficult in the sense that the timetabling is a bit longer, uh, getting permitted, whether, whether it's the mining side or the processing side, you know, getting access to land, getting permits and so on is, is harder, longer in uranium and therefore uh, it's tougher for us as a PE group, sort of time limited a bit uh, to get involved. But, but definitely, uh, you know, I'd like to be longer and stronger uh, uranium. Yeah, that is really good to hear because we're quite bullish on uranium as well. And I believe that Australia really only has three um, active mines in uranium. So very good point that there's a lot more to be discovered here, which is very bullish for our economy, I believe. I know, very much so. Well, highly prospective, you know, and and we've got the Olympic Dam and many of the other uh, deposits here, absolutely world-class. So, you know, and and there will be more or going all the way back to Mary Kathleen Uranium. You know, I worked on that myself years and years ago in the early days at uh, Rio Tinto. Wow, that's amazing. So I would love to know, because you speak with a lot of industry leaders, policymakers, finances, investors, we've talked about a couple of catalysts already, but are there any other patterns or trends that you are seeing in the sector emerging that, you know, perhaps hasn't had a lot of media attention yet? Look, Again, um, what are what are the trends? The, the trends are the some of the things that we've actually touched on. The trends will be, you know, continued uh, strong technical and technological growth, whether it's in the exploration side or the operating side. And a lot of it is driven by that people want more discoveries. Uh, it's driven by safety in the operating side, you, you, you know, to, to get a greater uh, productivity. And it's driven by access to energy uh, and the cost of energy. So, so people are going to be more and more active in that whole uh, technical area. That, that's fine. And as I say, you know, there's so much work going into it by so many different bodies. It will continue to be successful in a, from a growth trajectory perspective on that on that side. On on the on the, the other side of the whole decarbonisation energy transition, people are talking about that. Every pet shop parrot is talking decarb uh, and energy transition uh, metals. So therefore, you know, people want to be in, and and in a way, we've only just started. You know, it's got a long way to run. I mean, um, Xi has taken us out to 2060. Modi's taken us out to 2070, you know. So long, long way to run in the, the energy transition. So people are talking about that. Uh, but people are also talking about the whole ESG equation, you know. So, and again, we, we've actually been doing in our industry ESG for a very long period of time, whether it be environmental management, whether it be social uh, relationships with your with your people, particularly those on the ground in your communities, uh, or whether it be governance. And, you know, the governance here is very straightforward. We talked about the ASX listing uh, and various other elements of corporate governance. We've been doing it for a long period of time. And and now, of course, it's a bit more accentuated because the, the funds are becoming more and more uh, interested in it and the whole DEI equation too. And again, we've been We've been, we've been doing DEI. We might have called it something else, Candice, in, uh, previously, but we've been doing that. And it's so important for us to do that. One of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest
greatest challenges that we have is actually access to people and training people up. And yet one of the greatest resources we've got here uh, is women in the in the mining workforce. You know, we need more of them. We've got to encourage people to come into it. We've got to make it much more attractive uh, for, you know, for, for women and, well, everybody really, uh, but to come come into the workforce. How do, we, how do we do that? I mean, that's a challenge. We say, oh, we've got the answers. We're going to do this. We're going to have Wi-Fi. We've got to have uh, fly in, fly out. You've got to have all these different things. That's fine, but we're going to have to do more. We've been doing that for some time. We're going to have to do more to attract more uh, people uh, into the industry. So so we're on to it. <laughs> You're on to it. So what a great comment for International Women's Month, essentially, <laughs> that we need yes. more women in mining. Now, we cannot have the king of commodities on our podcast without asking you, which commodity would you be putting your money into right now? Right now, we're putting money into copper. Copper. Red gold. <laughs> and gold. Copper and gold. So they're both, they're perfect metals. They're going to be stronger for longer. Stronger for longer. So you heard it here. Red gold and gold is where Owen is putting his money for the next 20 plus years. Uh, lo- looking looking forward to it. So good, long, strong demand uh, for those commodities and, uh, and supply is short. You know, so we're supply side people. We we have we've we've actually got to get out there and do the work and find more. And to add to that, it's got to tick your eight golden rules as well. So that's fantastic. Now, one way that we love to end our conversations with special guests, Owen, is to ask you a very important question. Final question here is coffee, tea, or tequila. What's your preference? Ah, okay. Well, I definitely tequila. <laughs> I'm absolutely all over tequila. I've just been to Mexico City, uh, linking up with my uh, brothers and friends and sisters down there, my newfound partners in in Mexico, uh, and and tequila uh, is definitely in. So I'm into tequila. Apparently, the the people, wonderful, wonderful people down there in Mexico, they are one of the world's largest producers of avocados. Apparently, you can actually live on avocados and avocados avocado oil and tequila. That's a nice diet. <laughs> Have you got a favourite tequila brand in particular? No, no, they're all great. Thank you. <laughs> all of them. Well, thank you, Owen, so much for chatting with us today. It was great to have you on the show. Uh, lovely to be here and, and really appreciated it. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Wow, what a fantastic conversation with Owen Felicity. I have definitely taken a lot of his good insights and it's great to hear that he believes we're now into the new stage of the commodity cycle, which has a lot of legs and room to grow, right? Absolutely. And that's what we've been saying constantly on Talk Money to Me. We're at the beginning of a commodity super cycle. Um, I really loved his eight key points as well of what you should be looking at when looking at a resource company. Now, before we sign off, please remember that although Candice and I are registered financial advisors at Shore and Partners, please note our discussion today does not constitute as personal financial advice. As always, you should seek professional advice before making any of your financial or investment decisions. It's all based on facts known at the time of recording, which is the 14th of March 2023. This year is going so quickly. As always, guys, remember, if you want to follow us, we love it if you could do that. Our handle on Instagram is at Talk Money to Me Podcast, where you will get market daily updates. Also, if you've enjoyed this episode and the show in general, as always, we love your support. Please put in a review and a five-star rating anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Remember, we're always available to hear your thoughts, feedback, and questions or any topics you want us to discuss. Contact us via email at tmtm at equitymate 
www.thepodcastmates.com. That's it. Or send us a message on our Instagram because we will endeavour to get back to you as soon as possible. We'll be back next time. See you then. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.